0: This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Uh, we're going to keep going this morning in our sermon series through First Thessalonians. And we're going to consider, again, the passage uh, that we looked at last week, minus a few verses. Uh, the end of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3 are all about uh, Paul's separation from the Thessalonians. Uh, it's all about Paul's intense desire to be with the Thessalonians. It's all about uh, the opposition that Paul's experiencing that's keeping him uh, from being present uh, with them. And so last week, we, we listened to this very long passage And we just studied the passage by considering the theme and the thread that runs through the passage uh, that deals with opposition. Uh, As I read this morning, if if that intrigues you, you weren't here last week, you'll wanna go listen to the podcast because I'm not gonna speak to that uh, very much at all uh, again this morning. Uh, This week, we're gonna go back through the text and and we're gonna study the passage by looking at uh, Paul's very intense love for the Thessalonians. Uh, I want us to look at how intensely Uh, Paul loves these people in the midst of this opposition that they both are experiencing. And so just like last week, I'm not going to unpack every verse, but to see the verses that I want to unpack, I need you to hear uh, the entire context that surrounds them, and so again we 're going to stand for the reading of god 's word, and we totally understand uh, if you are unable to stand the entire time, uh, please feel free to take a seat so that you can focus in on and give the Word of God the respect that it deserves. So with that said let 's stand first Thessalonians chapter two, verse seventeen through chapter three verse thirteen. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in the faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know." For love for one another and for all, as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Jesus with all his saints. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you would, get out your worship folder and your worship folder insert and either listen again or look again at chapter three, verse 12. Uh, In this verse, Paul is praying and he prays this, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. And then he says this, as we do for you. And so we see in chapters two and three, the evidence of, and the description of an intense biblical love. Uh, Paul writes about his story with and his relationship with the Thessalonians for a couple of chapters. And then he labels that story, he labels that relationship as one of increasing and abounding love. And then he, he says that he's praying for them that they would increase and abound and grow in the same kind of love. And so what I thought we would do this morning is just consider the evidence of and the description of love. And I have two large points. The first point is rather long. The second point is rather short. The first point will have multiple sub points. But the the two points uh, for this morning are these. First, love is a complex generosity. Love is a complex generosity. And second, love has a simple source. And so we're gonna see that while love is expressed in a complex way, love is sourced in a very simple way. Okay, so first, let's get started Uh, Love is a complex generosity. When I use the word complex, I don't want you to instantly think complicated. Uh, I'm using the word in its literal sense. I'm using the word in the way in which this is defined in an English dictionary. This is what complex means. Something consisting of many various and connected parts. Various and connected parts. Second, when I use the word generosity, I'm using the word the way the Bible does. Uh, Generosity is not rich people giving a lot out of their abundance. Uh, Generosity is poor people giving what they could rightfully use on themselves. And so what we're going to see this morning is that love is a complex generosity. By that we mean it is the sacrificial giving of many different uh, but connected parts. Okay, so I wanna go back through the passage. It's gonna take us a little while, but I wanna go through the passage and I wanna see at least four realities that Paul generously gave to the Thessalonians that he could have kept for himself. You with me? 1st we I'll put this on the screen, passions. First, passions. It's most obviously and clearly seen in verse 17 of chapter two. Look there with me. But since we are torn away from you, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire. To see you face to face. Keep reading in verse 19. Because we wanted to come to you. This is what I mean by passion. To endeavor, to desire, to want. Uh, In a sense, passion is like vision. Uh, Passion is this deeply this deep desiring uh, to see something come true uh, in the future. Passion is like vision, it's like a horizon. In this instance, uh, Paul writes that this is his passion. He he literally writes uh, in verse uh, 17, uh, we abundantly endeavored with great desire to see your face. Nowhere in our text does it say face to face anywhere. It's always, I just want to see your face. Uh, The English desire, that's in our translations, is in the Greek, the word epithumia. We talk about this word all the time. It's the strongest word for desire in all of the New Testament. Thumia uh, means desire. Epi means hyper. This word means hyper desire, uber desire, highest desire. Not content to simply say, we hyper desire, Paul adds to it. He says, we abundantly endeavored with great hyper desire to see your face. So, next, thinking about passions, look at uh, the end of chapter 3, verse 6. Look at the very last phrase. Paul uses the same root, but he turns it into a verb. He says, we long or we hyper-desire to see you. But he doesn't just wanna see them. He further defines his passion in verse 10. Look down at verse 10. He says, we pray most earnestly night and day to see your face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Paul's great hyper-desire, Paul's deepest passion is not just to know that the Thessalonians are okay, It's not just for the joy he will receive when he gets to be with him. His greatest desire is their growth in the faith, uh, their development in the Lord, uh, their maturation in the gospel. Finally, when thinking about passion, uh, look at verse eight in chapter three. Look at this incredible statement that Paul makes. For now we live if you're standing fast in the Lord. Paul, Paul, of course, doesn't mean we're physically alive if you're standing fast in the Lord. He means that they're really living, that they're alive and well, that they're experiencing the fulfillment of their passions if the Thessalonians are remaining faithful, if they're standing fast in the Lord. All humans, all of us, all of us have this capacity and this ability and this propensity towards passion. We're all passionate about something or or some things. We all have a vision or a horizon, a goal, a desire. We're all, in essence, whether we know it or not, pursuing something in the future, something that we believe will give us life. This is part of what what it means to be human. As Paul says in verse eight, this is part of what it means to be alive. And, And this passage is telling us that biblical love is to put someone else and their good, however God defines it, on the horizon of our lives, is that thing for which we long, that thing for which we yearn, that thing for which we desire, uh, that thing that we greatly endeavor towards. So love is a complex generosity it 's the sacrificial giving of many different and various parts, and the first reality that Paul gives to the Thessalonians is his own passion his ability to be passionate. But second, Paul gives his emotions. What's really interesting to, to me about this passage, what I think is really cool about this passage, is how expressive Paul is about his emotions, how, quote, emotional he's being. Uh, I love how Paul's emotions are invested in and tied to the Thessalonians. Look at chapter two, verse 20. When Paul Paul specifically says that the Thessalonians are his quote joy, Paul is saying, My gladness, my joy, my happiness is inextricably bound to how you're doing spiritually. That's amazing. In chapter three, verse nine, Paul has just heard back from Timothy that the Thessalonians are doing well spiritually. He he says that he's thanking God. In the English, it says, uh, we're thanking God for all the joy we feel for your sake before God. But Paul literally writes this, we're thanking God for the joy we are joying. He takes the same Greek root and he makes it an object and a verb. Joy that we're joying. So joy is not just some idea. Joy is not just some, some theory. It's not some nebulous concept. It's an experience. And Paul is saying what makes me glad, what makes me happy, what makes me joyful, what makes me giddy, what makes me celebratory is the same thing that will make all of you celebratory. It is receiving your passion. And Paul says, my passion is the good news of the spiritual well-being of the Thessalonians. This makes me Happy. But look earlier in the story. Before there was joy, there was a deep anxiety and a deep fear. In verse 1 and in verse 5 of chapter 3, Paul says that he could, quote, bear it no longer. That is to say, Paul could no longer bear the the suspense of how the Thessalonians were doing. If you recall, Paul was in Thessalonica for three weeks. He was run out by persecutors. There are no cell phones, no text messages, no email. He has no idea uh, several months down the road how those baby Christians are doing, how that infant church is doing. In verse five, he says, I couldn't bear it anymore. I had to learn about the status of your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So first, joy. Second, anxiety and fear. Third, comfort. Look at verse seven. This is all about Paul's emotional generosity. He writes, for this reason, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. He's not talking about physical comfort. He's talking about emotional comfort. I want you to just stop and soak this in. I want you to think about how incredible this is. What Paul is alluding to uh, when he says, in all our distress and afflictions is this. In the past three months of his life, he was beaten, uh, he, I'm sorry, he, he, was be, he, he had been uh, stripped naked, uh, beaten mercilessly, jailed in the inner prison, uh, and defamed in Philippi. In the past three months of his life, he had been persecuted and run out of Thessalonica uh, by those looking to kill him. In Athens, he was rejected and scorned and mocked and, and run out of town. In, in Corinth, he's all by himself, He's anxiously waiting for Timothy to return. Uh, In Acts, it describes his emotional state as being very agitated. He's provoked. He's depressed. In all of this distress and affliction, more than anything I've ever experienced, Paul says, I'm comforted. I'm given emotional peace by the good news that you're standing fast in the gospel. So, so love is a generosity. It's a sacrificial giving of first passions. That is deep desire. It's this generosity of emotions. Uh, that is our ability to feel and experience life. And third, love is this generosity with petitions, prayers. Look at verses nine and 10 of chapter three. This is a long rhetorical question uh, from Paul to the Thessalonians. Thessalonians. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see your face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Especially if you haven't been here, let me remind you of where we are in the story. Okay, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy were in Athens and their efforts to get back to Thessalonica, those efforts were repeatedly thwarted by Satan. Chapter two, verse 18, whatever that means. Paul eventually decides to send Timothy to Thessalonica. He sends him there to build up the faith of the Thessalonians and to find out how the Thessalonians are doing. Paul, according to Acts, sent Silas back into Macedonia as well, presumably to Philippi. Paul moved on to Corinth uh, and he is in Corinth and he's there doing ministry, waiting for Timothy uh, to come back to him months later. Uh, Timothy comes back to Paul and tells Paul of the incredible news that the Thessalonians were still believing in God and that they still had really fond memories of him and of his team. But also, evidently, Timothy came back to Paul and said, they're still confused about a few things. They're still living in sin in regards to multiple things. And so Paul's decision is to write them this letter so he can in- instruct them and train them and to tell them this letter's not enough I have a deep desire that continues within me to come back to you to see your face in order to supply what's lacking in your faith. And so verse nine of chapter three is Paul talking about this ongoing Thanksgiving that he gives to God for past and present provision. And then verse 10 is Paul referencing this constant petition that he brings before the Lord for the future provision of safe travel and the opportunity to be back with him. And the point here that I'm trying to make is that Paul still longs for and desires and wants to see them. He wants to serve them. And in light of that, he says, I pray most earnestly night and day. And then Paul can't help himself. He just bursts into a prayer in verses 11 through 13. In some regard, modeling what he's been praying and in some regard, just obeying what he's been saying. And I'm using the the term petition here because for all the words in English, I'm sorry, in English, we have this word pray, but in Greek, there was a lot of different words. And this is the word for for, for petition, request, uh, and even beg. And Paul doesn't say, listen, I'm begging God to see your face. He doesn't just say, "Uh, listen, I'm begging God night and day to see your face. He says, I beg God most earnestly, night and day to see your face. It doesn't come across in the English very clearly, but in the Greek, this is a very rare term, this most earnestly. It's the highest form of comparison in the Greek language. Paul is saying, my most earnest prayer at this point in my life is for God to bring me back to you so that I can supply what is lacking in your faith. Paul is saying, when I pray, my most earnest prayer is for you. Love in the Bible is this complex generosity with our passions, our emotions, our petitions, and finally, our possessions. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. When we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ. Now, as weird as it sounds, Timothy was, in a sense, one of Paul's most valuable possessions. I'm going to share with you a little later as to why Timothy was so valuable to him. But for now, just hear this. Paul was an apostle directly commissioned by God to plant the gospel through the church. And in that mission, through the story of Acts, we find that, that God every now and then gave him partners Barnabas would be an example of this. Eventually Silas at some point became an example like this. But God would also in these missions give Paul assistance. Uh, You might even say servants. That's what the word means. Paul gave him men like Timothy and Titus to serve him. And due to Paul's age, due to Paul's impact on Timothy's life, due to God's call on Timothy's life, Timothy was under the authority of Paul and he was a resource for Paul to steward however Paul wanted to. And of all of Paul's, quote, resources, Timothy was his most valuable possession. He tells us that in Philippians chapter two and three. And, and, and Paul, for a while, struggled with the decision. Do I send Timothy back to Thessalonica or do I keep Timothy here to help me? I, I don't know the various details, but evidently Paul knew before he sent Timothy that he had the opportunity to send him. It says in our passage that that Paul tried again and again to go back to Thessalonica, but but Satan hindered him. And whatever that hindrance was, we don't know exactly what it was. Whatever it was, it wasn't hindering Timothy because Paul knew that he could send Timothy uh, to the Thessalonians. And he had a decision to make. Do I keep my, my most valuable possession or do I give others that which is most precious to me? Paul says in verse one, We were willing to be, quote, left behind in Athens alone. Left behind is a very, very strong word for being forsaken, being abandoned. Timothy sent him, I'm sorry, Paul sent him, so Timothy in no way abandoned Paul, but Paul is trying to communicate to us exactly how painful it was to be him when Timothy left. I was abandoned, I was forsaken. We know from the book of Acts that in and around his time in Athens and in Corinth, Paul was experiencing isolation, loneliness, hardship, agitation, mental anguish. Why did he send his most valuable possession to the Thessalonians? It's simple. Chapter 3, verse 12. He loved them. Generosity is not the rich giving from their abundance. Generosity is the needy sharing what they could rightfully keep for themselves. Paul was generous with his passions, his emotions, his petitions, uh, and his possessions. And if, you, if you're intrigued by that kind of life like I am, in a moment we're going to talk about what's the source of that? How does that happen? But before we get there, I, I want to I take three points of application from what we've discovered so far. I want to give us three points of application based on what we've seen uh, so we can reflect on this more and really apply it to our lives. Okay, so here's the first one. These will go go rather quickly. This is it. This passage provides a practical and useful definition for love. This passage provides a practical and useful definition for love. In our, in our day and age, the word love is used so much and in so many different ways, it can mean almost anything and therefore it means nothing. But I don't know if you've noticed this in my teaching over the last seven years, but I think this is a very detrimental thing for Christianity. Here's why. The Bible says that the summary of all God wants from us and expects from us is love. And so if we live in a culture that says love is anything and therefore nothing, then that word and that concept begins to become diluted for us. And so I'm constantly trying to show us what love means biblically. If you've ever been to a wedding that I've officiated, this is always the main point. What is love? Because my children live in a world that's taken this word and diluted it of all of its meaning, I have these various and somewhat obnoxious ways of reminding them of what love means. I am constantly trying to work into their minds what love is, so when they read it in the Bible, they understand it. Uh, this week, I asked my three daughters over and over and over, How do I want you to respond when that first boy says to you, I love you? I've always given them responses that they can give back, like, What does that mean? Let's be a little more articulate. <laughs> Let's define our terms. What does that mean? This week, I offered this up as a solution. They could actually memorize this if they want. This could be one they employ. He says, I love you. They could say, By that, do you mean that you're passionate about my spiritual growth and holiness? (laughs) By that, do you mean that a massive part of your vision for your life is my good exactly how God defines it? By that, do you mean that, that you're gonna be emotionally with me and emotionally for me? By that, do you mean that you'll pray for my faithfulness and my fruitfulness more than your own? By that, do you mean that any possession you have, you will gladly give to invest towards these ends? If he can't say yes to that, he means I love me when he says I love you. But if he can say yes to that and your experience of him over a long period of time is that he means it, say to him, that sounds great. I would be honored to be loved by you that way. In fact, I deeply respect you. That, by the way, is how the Bible defines marriage in Ephesians 5. That the husband loves the wife like Jesus loved the church, giving up his life for her, making her beautiful before the Lord. And the wife says, I'll take that and I'll respect you for it. You see, love is not this fuzzy, nebulous concept in the Bible. It's sacrifice and death and generosity. And if I don't keep reminding myself of that, I will have some feeling in my belly and I will call it love the Bible says love is a cross. It's so much more beautiful than that. Second, second point of application. Uh, our emotions reveal our passions. Our emotions reveal our passions. So our first point is that love is a complex generosity. That means we're, we're giving away various and connected parts. I'm emphasizing the word connected here. Biblically, we know, and in life, we know that passions lead to emotions, that emotions lead to petitions, and that the offering up of petitions will often result in the offering up of possessions. The opposite is also true biblically and in life. We tend to pray for what we give our possessions to, we tend to become more emotionally engaged with people that we pray with and for. We tend to become more passionate about someone or something uh, after an emotional experience connected to that person or to that reality. Complex means various and connected parts. Our passage, I think, shows all of these, but the connection that's made, made most obvious in our passage is the one between passion and emotion. At the top of the passage, Paul's like, I am so passionate about you. And then as that passion works itself out in the story, his emotions follow. Here's the point of application. If you're unsure as to what you're passionate about, inspect your emotions. If we're unsure as to how selfish our passions are or how selfish uh, um, uh, our emotions are, I'm sorry, I'll say it differently. If we're unsure as to how, how selfish our passions are, uh, all we have to do is inspect how, how uh, selfish our emotions are. In my experience, While emotions are not easy to investigate and understand, they're easier to investigate and understand than my passions. Our passions are not always that thing we put on our resume. Our passions and our deepest desires are are not always that thing we blog about. Our passions are discovered by our emotions. Think about it. Think about our passage. We're excited when we think we're going to get that which we're passionate about. We're anxious and afraid when we don't know if we'll obtain what we're passionate about. We're joyful, glad, and happy when we get an an installment of that for which we're passionate. We're absolutely crushed and despondent. We are something more than sad when it becomes clear that we will not obtain that thing for which we're passionate. Uh, Jesus famously said, seek first the kingdom of God. That's another way of saying, be most passionate about my kingdom. Since passions are hard to investigate and understand, we can look to our emotions and we can ask ourselves, by my emotions, can I tell if my passions are more about me and my kingdom or him and his kingdom? Jesus famously said, love, sacrifice, service. This is the summary of all the commandments. This is what I want from you. And our emotions can tell us if we're passionate about using ourselves to advantage other people or if we're passionate about using other people to advantage ourselves. Passions are revealed by emotions. Last point of application, before we move on, before we close rather quickly with the last point. Because holy love and sinful idolatry are both passionate They can only be distinguished by the end goal. Let's say that again. Because holy love and sinful sinful idolatry are both passionate, they can only be distinguished by the end goal. If you're like me or Damien or Michelle, who I worked on this sermon with this week, if you are like us, when you hear this passage, you wonder if Paul's being idolatrous. You're like, that is over the top. If you're like me, you're thinking, did he give too much desire to a created thing? Uh, we think this when we hear this passage because it's possible to discover our idolatry by asking questions like these. In the story of this church, we have, we have talked about discovering our idolatry by asking questions like these. What's your hyper desire? Uh, what do you think about and long for all the time? I have asked this question, what makes you elated and what causes you anxiety? I've asked this question, what what reality do you have to have in order to be alive? These are incredible questions because they help us uncover idolatry. They help us uncover false worship. Uh, they're, They're incredibly helpful because this is true. Both holy love and sinful idolatry are passionate. But passion doesn't automatically indicate idolatry. I believe In our little culture of Christianity, we always think passion is idolatry. Instead of realizing that God actually likes us, He's actually for us, He wants us to enjoy life, and He gives us passions. And so, because both holy love and sinful idolatry are both passionate, it's not just passion that we say, oh, bad, that's idolatry. It's what's the end goal of my passion? I want you to look at verse 19, chapter two. This is Paul's end goal. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? The crown of boasting is a very difficult phrase to translate It's literally this, the wreath of exaltation. This will unlock this verse for you. Listen closely. The wreath of exaltation was a term commonly used in Macedonia and in Thessalonica to speak of a wreath of oak leaves that would be given to someone after a great accomplishment. The person being honored by the wreath would very quickly... Indicate the deity that that deserved the real glory and the real honor for their accomplishments. Paul is saying this: the end goal is the worship and exaltation of Jesus. Any credit I get for your faith goes straight to Jesus when He comes back. The end goal for Paul was the worship of Jesus and the joining of others. In that worship. Because they're both passionate, this might help us. With sinful idolatry, the end goal of my passion is me. With holy love, the end goal of my passion is the worship of Jesus in the presence of many other people. All right, let's transition to our second point. I want to ask how does this love increase? How does this love grow? If you're like me, you're seeing that your life is not like Paul and you want it to be. Uh, If you're like me, maybe you're realizing my passions, my emotions, my petitions, my possessions, uh, they are primarily going towards me and my selfishness and my idols. Uh, If you're like me and you're a parent, you're thinking, I'm drawn to this kind of love for my children. Remember the main metaphor between Paul and the Thessalonians is that of a mother with her children and a father with his children. Paul is their earthly spiritual father. And maybe you, like me, are saying, I want this kind of love for my kids' good and for the glory of my king. How do I do that? Very simply, point two, if it's not on the screen, we'll put it on the screen now. The source of love is faith. And so while love is expressed in complex ways, uh, the source of love is very simple. It's faith. It's faith. To love others more, we have to believe more that we're loved. To love others more, we have to believe more that we're loved. Look back at verse 12 of chapter 3. Paul is praying that the Thessalonians' love would increase and abound. Okay, but already in this passage, he has referenced their faith five times. He has specifically said that their faith produces love, or he has connected their, their faith to their love in verse 6. So, so Paul says in verse five, I'm worried about your faith. Uh, Paul says uh, in verse six, we find out that he's that he's happy about uh, hearing of the good news of their faith. Uh, Paul realizes in verse 10 that their faith is still lacking and he wants to see them face to face to supply what is lacking in their faith. And so when Paul says, I want God to direct our way to you uh, so that you can abound in love, he's already made the point five times that their love will grow as their faith grows. So, what is their faith in? What are they believing? What do we need to believe more? Look at verse 2. We sent Timothy, our brother and God's co worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. More faith in the gospel of Christ will make their love grow. And faith in the gospel of Christ comes from God and a co-worker working it deeper into us. So as we said before, Timothy was extremely valuable to the Apostle Paul. When Paul left Berea for Athens, again, he left Timothy there in Berea. We again know from the book of Acts that when Paul was in Athens, uh, he entered there and he began to debate the philosophers of the day. And we know that Paul was lonely and agitated and provoked and in mental anguish. And we know that he tried to execute this incredibly difficult ministry all by himself without Timothy. We know from the book of Acts that when when Timothy gets there, Paul is elated. We know that Paul is sitting there thinking, do I give them Timothy or do I keep Timothy? Do I give them Timothy or do I keep Timothy? We know from the book of Philippians that Timothy ministered the gospel to Paul in utterly unique ways. In that book, he said, you can have Epaphroditus. I am not giving you Timothy. Somehow, some way, Timothy understood Paul and he served Paul and he ministered the gospel to Paul in unique ways. And Paul's like, am I gonna have them grow in their faith or am I gonna keep him here so I can stay steady in my faith? Don't miss the point. For them to love more, they needed to be further established in the gospel. They needed to have their faith increase in the gospel of Jesus. They needed the gospel of Jesus worked into them by God and his coworker, Timothy. Listen and think. We can only give up the love of self to love others when we see and realize and believe that we're deeply and graciously loved by God in Christ Jesus. Listen and think to become passionate for another's benefit and for Jesus's glory. We have to realize and further believe that Jesus was passionate for our benefit when we had rebelled and were dead in our sins. To give more and more of our valuable possessions to others, we have to see how valuable we were to Jesus, so valuable that he gave up every last possession, including his undergarments on the cross, so that he could have us. To give our possessions away, we have to realize how valuable we are to him that he gave all of his possessions away far more than we could ever imagine so that he could be with us forever. The simple source of love is faith. Paul says in Galatians 5, faith expresses itself in love. The deeper the faith, the deeper the love. Look at Hebrews 12.2. It's the call to worship. It's on the front of your worship folder. I want us to think about this considering all that we discovered about life and the heart today. Hebrews chapter 12, verse two. It says this, looking, or or look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus's passion, that which was set before him was you. Eternity with you. That was his passion. And for the emotional joy of having you, for the emotional joy of receiving his passion, he endured, he suffered, he went through the physical pain, emotional shame, and spiritual wrath of the cross. Jesus' horizon was eternity with us. His horizon was the joy of being with us forever. To get there, he endured the cross that we deserved. And Paul is saying, if someone will work that into us, and if we will really believe it, we will begin to love. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you, thank you, thank you that eternity apart from us was not a joy to you, but that eternity with us was your idea of a great time. We thank you for your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness and your righteousness. We thank you for all that you have done to have us. We pray that you would help us to see how deeply loved we already are that we might love. Help us to see how passionate you are about us, that we might be passionate about others and not ourselves. Help us to see that you have given up every possession to have us and that we can never outgive you. I pray that you would free us from a self-centered life and give us the joy and the peace of living for your glory and the good of others. In your name we pray.